0: All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and get started with our Roman study and uh, open with open with a prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and your faithfulness to it and what that really means for us in so many ways. And so, Lord, um, just as we come together as a local assembly, um, just help us to, to discern it. Uh, we know and we, we realize that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And does so much more for us. And so, Father and Lord, we just pray for discernment as we open up this word. And we just give you thanks for it. I thank you for each person that's here. And pray for those who are still traveling. And pray for the services to follow. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be picking up. And as you turn there, just a reminder... Uh, the last two chapters, Paul has been progressing through the idea, uh, the idea of showing that mankind is guilty before God. Therefore, God is just in judging mankind, and, and he's going to get into that aspect here in chapter three. Chapter three, uh, because believe it or not, I don't know if you've noticed, man does not like the idea of being judged, right? <laughs> We don't like it. Husbands don't like to be judged by their wives. Wives don't like to be judged by their husbands. We don't like to be judged by our bosses. We don't like to be judged by our friends, society, in anybody. And least of all, do, does man want to be judged by God? And there's a reason for that, because we know that if it's our friend, we can say, well, I know what you did. But we can't say that about God, can we? We can't say, well, God, I know that you're a sinner. And so mankind does not like the idea of being judged by God. So Paul has been making a point here for a while regarding um, the fact that man has failed to live up uh, to um, its necessities. And so um, Paul has dealt with the Jew in chapter 2, and he's going to deal with them some more here, but he's dealt with them in chapter 2 On two different points And those are the law and circumcision And ultimately the law He says what good is it to rest In the law What good is it to boast in the law What good is it to say that you believe in the law What good is it to teach the law If you do not obey the law He says that it doesn't do you any good To teach it To proclaim it To say you adore it It does you no good if you don't Do the law Unfortunately the Jew misunderstood that and so um, he was making that point to them and I think he did a, a very good job of making that point to them And as far as circumcision we spent quite a bit of time talking about that and we have in the past circumcision they were rusting in the physical circumcision that they have forgetting that the circumcision was a token uh, and if you think of a token a token is something that represents something else right you know, you go to whenever our kids were little, you know, or whenever. You might take them to Chuck E. Cheese. Do they have Chuck E. Cheese in Florida? Yes. Okay. And you get these tokens, yeah. right? Well, that, that token represented real money. Well, the circumcision was supposed to re- represent, that physical circumcision was supposed to represent the real circumcision that was supposed to be in the heart of every Jew saying, I belong to you, God. And the Jew forgot that. And the Jew began to rest in the token instead of what it was supposed to represent. Wouldn't do me any good to go pay my bill with Chuck E. Cheese coin, would it? I can't rest in that token. And so um, the Jew ultimately forgot and began to, um, and, and not only just to rely on it, when confronted, because nobody likes to be judged, when they began to be confronted with the fact that they're guilty, Paul is going to be dealing with those Um, almost what we think are absurd arguments and he's going to deal with people who are going to suggest that even that God doesn't have a right to judge and so uh, the Jew from their perspective was trying to suggest that they could rest in their circumcision on who their heritage and so uh, because of the actions of the Jews Paul was making the point in the last chapter that uh, because of The things that you're doing, Jew, uh, you are causing Gentiles to blaspheme God. And that was one of his points that he made. That your proclamation that you are God's people, that you are circumcised, that he is working through you, but then whenever you act like the world, when you act like the Gentile, um, you are causing them to blaspheme God. In other words, scoffing saying, you know, we see this today in in the world. Whenever, you know, God is blasphemed by the Gentile because they see hypocritical Christians, right? So, you know, even today we understand that how we live our lives is a reflection of how and how people are going to look at God. They say that, you know, even within families, (coughs) that daughters, um, you know... Their beliefs on God oftentimes are a reflection of how their father treats them. And so, you know, as a, as a father, are, are, are you loving? Are you kind? Are you, are, you those, are you a reflection of God? And so the Jew, because of their actions, um, caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God. We looked at scriptures from the Old Testament where it wasn't a new thing. The Jews had done that before. And so, but understand that Paul is moving through Romans. And through these first two chapters Paul has not even begun to teach The mystery yet You know what Paul says It was given to him by special special revelation um, That is in effect the Mystery is in effect It doesn't start like later in the book of Romans He just hasn't begun to teach it yet He's still setting the stage In, in Romans 1 and Romans 2 Making the case that All is guilty All are guilty before God And so the mystery itself has not yet begun to be taught, or even the setting aside of Israel. Those come later in this very book. So Paul is strategically, God ultimately is strategically bringing people to an understanding. And those are the things, whenever you get to Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, you're going to see the issue with the, with the uh, Israel come up again. And Paul's going to say that, as we're going to see some of the verses... He's going to say that Israel has been set aside. But he hasn't made that case yet that we've studied. And so keep that in mind. All right. Any questions on any of that before we get started in chapter 3? Okay, Romans chapter 3. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 to start with. It says, What advantage then... Again, that word then there associates the things he's said at the end of chapter 2 what advantage then has the Jew what profit is there of circumcision much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God and so Paul again having just laid out the fact that the circumcision cannot save you Jew the law cannot save you the Jew might naturally ask the question well then is there an advantage to being a Jew and that's a fair question And Paul is going to give the answer. But keep in mind as we look at this is that Paul is going to say, one, that the Jew had an advantage, does have an advantage. But you have to understand there's a difference between that and having a special place. The Jews had a special place before God. That special place, even here, again, because Paul is going to reveal this later in Romans, that special place is gone. We've talked about that before in, in this day of grace There's two groups You're either in Christ or in Adam Okay That special place that the Jews had Is gone Temporarily But there's still an advantage that the Jew has And They had it in a spectacular way before But even today the Jew has an advantage And he, he talks about that here And he mentions this oracles Which we'll talk about that in a minute But turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. See, the Jew um, has the advantage, or especially had the advantage, uh, because they were the chosen race and the things that came with that. You know, as a citizen of the United States... I believe we advantage over citizens of other countries because we have this thing called the Constitution. We have this thing called a Bill of Rights that comes with being a United States citizen. And so with being that chosen race, there were things that came with it besides just simply being chosen by God. Verses 4 and 5. says, Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Now, I'm going to tell you to remember that service of God, okay? Who are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. And so, there is an advantage for the Jew. And as we see here, there are these things here. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. So um, the giving of the law was part of God's word. And you have the covenants, God's agreements and promises that he was going to make with the nation of Israel. And so the Jew had that. Unfortunately, too many people today, if you go to um, some churches, and I'm sure that are some pretty close to around here, they're going to want to teach you that you are saved based on covenants, that you can adopt for yourself the covenants that God made to the nation of Israel. Let me give you a hint You cannot Yeah because what comes with the blessings The curses If you want to try to take on you the blessings Then at least be honest enough to take the curses on too uh, And so you can't take yourself Take those covenants on for yourself So here we, we see Paul in Romans 9 is, again, He's mentioning part of these um, advantages That the Jew has Turn with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse seven. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse seven. And what it says here: understanding that the Jew did have an advantage, and they could, they should understand. Stand. There was a wrong for them to, to claim that they had an advantage or to see themselves having an advantage. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what nation is there so great? Well, what nation is this referring to? Israel. Israel. What nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all the law which I set before you this day? I read, I read verse 8 there for what nation, Verse 7 For what nation is there so great who hath God So nigh unto them So near unto them As the Lord our God is in all things That we call upon him for Then verse 8 And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments So righteous As all this law Which I said before you So you can see that there is This special place That Israel has But look at verse 6 Keeping with the uniform aspect of that, with having that special place, necessitates that you do the things that God says. Verse 6, keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And so it's always been this consistency. You have this blessing. You've, you've got this, uh, the service of God, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You have the word. You have this special place that you can call upon God himself. Israel had those things. Look at Psalm 147. David here says that has God dealt with any other nation like this. Psalm 147. 19 and 20. Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 19 says, He shows his word unto Jacob. Now, what was Jacob's name changed to? <coughs> Israel. Israel. Right? So you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, didn't he? So. Here you have Jacob. He showed his word unto Jacob, his statue, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. So you can see Israel, the nation of Israel, did have an advantage. That advantage included that special place that they held, meaning God had made covenants with them. God had made... Promises to them, God had given them his word, had given him his law that gave them the advantage of knowing his will you know whenever whenever you reveal your will to somebody that gives them advantage and really an opportunity and a head start to do what is right and Israel had that opportunity unfortunately um, they didn't live up to it and so it's uh, it's not a case which they continue to have a special place but they did continue to have the advantage even today when you go minister you would think even though scripture tells us it's become a stumbling block to the nation of Israel you would think for the honest searcher of the scriptures that a Jew would have the advantage over a non-believing Gentile because a non-believing Gentile is going to be secular it's going to be an atheist doesn't oftentimes even believe in god but with the jew you're already dealing with somebody who believes in god who believes in genesis hopefully and so you would think that you would have that advantage Um, but as we see from scripture um, they stumbled over the stumbling block and, and so that has become a problem and so back here to romans chapter three
1: Would it be fair to um, consider or think about that they have responsibilities as well as being chosen, right? They, they, I think in the Old Testament referred to as firstborn, and with that comes responsibility. I mean, you get to be um, in charge, but then you also have the the onus of making the right decisions about things, which way you go, etc., and I, th- I would offer that they've been overwhelmed in this in this world, or by the world. I mean, they're surrounded. Speaking now, uh, currently, in the position that they're in, and they've I've got to feel at this point abandoned. They're just thinking of our country, etc. And uh, yeah, yeah. Where, do they, where do they turn? How do they? How do they deal with that? You know, because I don't think. Fundamentally the whole country is is religious. They're not. Right. And Matter of fact, so most of them aren't. Right. So the ones that are are very zealous, are very upset in the ways that are kind of honkered down, I would I would offer or suggest and, and they,
0: just, they're, they're reclusive. They're, they're right. Right. So, yeah. right. Yeah, they keep to themselves. And so it's uh, they don't um, they it's uh, it's kind of hard to reach the, the um, Jewish uh, religious person who has a, um, a conservative. And by conservative, I mean a traditional Jewish bent. And so because in, you know, I can tell you, you can go to Israel, and Israel is more hedonistic than America. People lose sight of that. But you go to Tel Aviv and you go to some places, and it's literally more hedonistic than most of America, and so it's very liberally minded. Right. Now you have um, you have those again who are, who are uh, the traditional Jewish, um, right, the orthodox, orthodox. Thank you, that's the right. word I'm looking for here. Um, orthodox Jews, and they keep to themselves. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see them necessarily uh, mixing with other people. And so, do they have a responsibility? Yes, and I think that that's that's where Paul is, is referring to the fact that they've caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God because of you have this. This is what you did with it, and this was the effect. The Gentiles blasphemed God. Now, that doesn't excuse the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the Bible doesn't say they have an excuse for it. It just says that, that they did blaspheme because of, of the, the Jews. And so... Uh, that's, that's certainly the case. Go back here to Romans 3. I want to look at this word oracles that he mentions here in verse 2. Because depending on which translation you have, I'm not sure which one which word yours uses, but I know the King James, I believe the New King James uses the word oracles here. And the word oracles is not the same word as word. And just to reread it, Romans 3 um, Verse 2, it says, you know, after asking what advantage, it says, much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. There's a reason why you get this word oracles instead of just the word "word." In the Old Testament, um, oracles always referred to that uh, holiest place um, within the tabernacle and the temple. So you had the, the tabernacle before you had the temple and you had that holiest place In whatever you, what it would be referred to as the oracle, and turn with me to First Kings, chapter six, verse sixteen. First Kings, chapter six, verse sixteen. While you're turned there, like I said, it's not the same word. Um, for just work in the Old Testament it's always a reference to this holiest place and I'm just bringing up one uh, one reference to it if you have a Bible software or you can use it on your phone go look it up you'll find that it's oftentimes when God is referring to that that place in the temple or the tabernacle where the where the word was actually held it's referred to as oracle. We look here at uh, verse, uh, 16. First Kings 6, 16. And he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, but the floor and the walls with boards of cedar. He even built them for it within, even for the oracle, even for the most holy place. And the house, that is the temple before it, was 40 cubits long. And the cedar of the house was with. Uh, house within was carved with knops and open flowers all was cedar there was no stone seen in the oracle he prepared in the house within to set the ark uh, set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord where did the ark go in the temple in the tabernacle in the holiest of holies okay and so we can see that's what's referred to as the oracle and the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there, the ark of the co- covenant of the Lord, verse 20, and the oracle in the forepart was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold, so he covered the altar which was, which was there. And so know, know that um, in the Old Testament this word oracle has to do with that place. And it, so it wasn't just the word. It wasn't that the Jews just simply received the word of God; they received the oracle, and, the, and it, it has to do with the word and the worship. It was there. It was at that holy of holy where, where worship took place, where the high priest would go to. In the New Testament, the context always includes a response, unlike the word logos, which we get the word a word" from. Okay, with with. With the word or, uh, oracles, there's it's, the context includes a response with it. And so whenever we see here in Romans chapter 3 that the Jews received the oracles of God, it's talking about they received the word and the worship of God. You see, for at that time, for a Gentile to worship God, how did they have to go? Through the nation of Israel. They were that chosen people. That was God's method of... Dealing with the world Now the interesting thing is is um, Today They don't have that special place Who does? The body of Christ has that The body of Christ has been given The word and the worship of God You as a member of the body of Christ You have today later When we have our service um, Whenever we, we sing our songs Whenever we worship God through hymns Or through the study of word Um, That is given for us because we have that special place with God. Well, to Israel, that advantage that they have was because they were given the law, they were given the covenants, they were given, as we read in uh, Romans chapter 9, they were given that that special set of things which includes the word and the worship of God. So understand whenever you see this in Romans chapter 3 that uh, there's a reason why your Bible... Says or should say, oracles there because it's not simply them they were given the word of God. They were given much, much more. And I hope that we understand that that privileged situation that that we have today because we have that we have that today. All right, back to Romans three. Paul is going to get in some some deep issues here. Verse three, he's going to basically. Ask the question, shall the unbelieving Jew cause God Not to be faithful Um, And believe It or not, Paul is going to have to deal With that issue here, he's going to have to deal with With some absurd Questions, some things that we um, We might not think to to Make much sense, but to those Who are looking for an excuse, they'll come up With an excuse, Uh, they'll believe Anything, rather than believing God Has a right to judge them, and so What he's dealing with here in verse 3 is, Shall the unbelieving Jew cause God not to be faithful? Let's read verse 3. He says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And what that means by the faith of God is referring to the faithfulness of God. Shall, Shall the fact that you have some individual Jews who are not going to be able to receive the blessings of God is that somehow going to affect God's faithfulness? Is he going to be unfaithful because of some? In other words, um, Paul here is saying God will perform for believing Israel, Israel all that he had promised. Turn to Romans 11. Paul will say it here specifically. Look at Romans 11, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty five says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so all Israel shall be saved. So it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so Paul here, again, is, is making the point that Israel is going to be saved. And so he's kind of dealing with that issue back here in Romans chapter 3, um, verse 3. So because some didn't believe God, does that mean that it's not going to happen, that God is not going to be faithful? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 11 is saying, no, nope, all of Israel. Well, then the natural question that should come to our mind is, well, wait a minute, does that mean all of Israel, as in every single Jew, is going to get saved? no because Paul deals with that question too in chapter 9 look at chapter 9 verse 6. Again, whenever you're Paul whenever whenever you read the scriptures you, you need to make sure you understand who God is talking to and who God is talking about. and so here in Romans chapter 9 10 11, He is often dealing specifically about Israel. And so here in Romans 9, verse 6, he is talking about Israel, and he says, Not as though the word of God has has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So it's just because you were circumcised, just because you were born in the land, just because you were a descendant of Jacob, does not make you true Israel. And so... Whenever he's he's talking about all Israel shall be saved, he's talking about true Israel, those who are not just circumcised in the flesh, but also circumcised in the spirit, circumcised in the heart. Those who believe the promises of God. Those who believe believe when Moses said, "There's going to be one coming after me who is greater than I." Him you believe. Those that believe on their Messiah, and so here in back to Romans three. Um, Paul is is again making it known that God is going to keep His promises, which we talked about last week in the message, didn't we? Talking about repentance, that God doesn't repent. Matter of fact, look at First uh, Samuel with me. Go back to First Samuel. First Samuel fifteen, verse uh, twenty nine. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine. It seems, like I said, absurd almost that Paul has to deal with this issue of is is some unbelieving Jews mean that God is not going to save Israel, um, but he is dealing to deal with that. First Samuel fifteen, look at verse twenty nine here. He says, and also the strength of Israel. Will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Now, obviously, from this, who is or what is the strength of Israel? God, Jehovah, the Lord, which turned out to be Jesus. So the strength of Israel is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. He's not going to change his mind about the things, the promises he made regarding Israel. Let that be a lesson to anybody who wants to think that the body of Christ has replaced the nation of Israel. It doesn't work that way. God had made a promise specifically to the nation of Israel. He's going to fulfill those promises. He's not a man that he should repent and change his mind and say, Oh, sorry, Israel, I think I'll do it with these guys over here instead. It doesn't work that way. So,
1: yeah. I was just going to say, and maybe the flip side of his sovereignty is that we can't change his mind. We're not going to change his mind. Yeah, we're not going to have an effect on him
0: I think that's a lot of actually what what that verse in Romans is talking about the idea is, is that we're not going to change his mind right. you know our actions aren't going to change his mind go back to Numbers 23 so yeah that's a very good point there Derek Numbers twenty three nineteen, and you don't have to turn there and I'll re- read it for you it just says God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent Hath he said, or shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Understand, when people say that God is not going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, they need to address that verse. The fact that God said that he was going to do something special with the nation of Israel, for people to say, well, he's not going to do that, Um, that's very problematic. It says here, shall he not make it good? Matter of fact, he says over and over in Scripture, I have promised, talking to the nation of Israel, and I will perform it, reassuring them over and over again. And so, keep in mind that he is going to, he's going to keep those promises, and that's what Paul is referring to here in Romans 3. Go ahead and turn back there with me. Any more comments or questions on, And God's plan for the nation of Israel, we'll obviously talk about that more as we get into 9, 10, and 11, but that might be at least a few weeks away. Romans 3, verse 4, um, Paul answers the question. Um, He says, God forbid, well, what does he mean God forbid? God forbid that the unbelief of some of the Jews is going to make God not be faithful, God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou might might be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome, when thou art judged. And that might be a confusing uh, verse to some. But ultimately, what what he's saying is is that um, you know God has. Uh, well, first of all, understand that Paul is transitioning in. Between verses 4 through 8, Paul is transitioning to um, some of the arguments that some are making, that God doesn't have a right to judge. And so here, what he's dealing with, again, is the idea of those who want to suggest that um, God doesn't have that right to judge. And so he quotes, Paul quotes here from David, from Psalm 51. And so um, that is a psalm in which David confesses his sin Before God, he says, I've sinned against you and against you alone have I sinned. And he says that because of that, you have the right. Well, let's just read it because I'll mess it up. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I'll just read starting verse one. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto thy multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me through my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight now here's the quote that Paul uses that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest and so here speaking that God has this right to judge mankind David acknowledges it David acknowledges I've sinned and I've sinned against you and and, and he acknowledges God's right to judge Paul here is using it to point out the fact that, that God has the right to judge and he's using, ultimately, which Paul likes to do to the Jew, he likes to use their scriptures, including his own. He likes to use the Old Testament against the Jew. And so he's using David's words against them. Because there are apparently some who are getting ready to make a very absurd argument. These next few verses, what they're going to argue is, well, wait a minute, if our sin... Maybe you've never heard this argument, but there are many that teach it today. Our, if my sin shows how great God is... Well, therefore, my sin brings him glory. Therefore, does he really have a right to judge me when my actions are bringing him glory? That's really what they're getting ready to argue. And so, seems absurd to us. But that's exactly what he's getting ready to have to deal with here. So, let's go back to Romans 3. And these verses 5 through 8, if I was going to summarize it, it's ultimately, it's, does sin glorify God? No. No. And so the argument that people are obviously making is, is if sin glorifies God does that therefore excuse us and make God wrong for judging the sinner and the sin that's what verses 5 through 8 are dealing with does God or does sin glorify God and does does that excuse man because man is always looking for an excuse ok so let's read verses 5 through 8 to get Uh, What I'm talking about here Romans 3 verse 5 It says but if our unrighteousness Commend The righteousness of God What shall we say Is God Unrighteous who takes vengeance Or judgment And notice he says here I speak as a man In other words man suggests such uh, an Absurdity God forbid For then how shall God Judge the world for if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie. He, he's given the, um, the hyperbole, the, the argument, which is a very ignorant one. He says, For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? You follow what he's saying here? He's basically saying, Why, why am I judged as a sinner if my <coughs> sinful actions bring glory to God? Why would God want to judge me? It seems as though that he would want to praise me because I just brought him more glory. Now, that's how unlogical man can be. But man tends to be unlogical. And so he goes on. Verse 8. And not rather, as we have been slandishly reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just, Apparently, at this point, Paul had already been accused. Paul and his beliefs of uh, believers, those who, have, uh, who who follow after him and his teaching, have already been accused of saying that that um, it's okay to sin because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Therefore, go ahead and go sin. And Paul's saying, basically, we've been accused of that, and God forbid. That is nothing close to what we're saying. And so, the question is, is, Does sin glorify God? In other words, if man's unrighteousness demonstrates his righteousness, brings him glory, does that make God wrong to judge? Um, Now again, as I said, that seems absurd to us, but that's actually quite a popular teaching among those who would try to call themselves Christians today. Are you familiar with the universalists? Universalist doctrine? Um, obviously, they there's different variants, and, and it continues to evolve and change over time. Ultimately, their belief system is God would never judge the world and condemn us all to sin. Some of them believe that there's going to be a temporary punishment, but um, um, Jesus paid for that, and so you're just going to go um, suffer for a little bit of time. But, um, then you're going to be redeemed after you've you know you've been slapped on the wrist a few times, but. Also, some of them, and for a long time, have taught the idea that, hey, when your sin, you know, it brings Him glory. And so, really, you know, it would be wrong for God to judge you. It would be wrong for God to judge you for whenever you bring Him glory. Again, we get caught in our own circles and we don't necessarily pay attention to what some groups are out there teaching, but that's some of the nonsense that those who want to who want to associate themselves with Christianity are out there teaching. Do you think any wonder why God tells us to to mark and avoid those who are teaching false doctrines? Well, then basically what what, you, what they're saying here is let's go send some more. That's ultimately matter of fact. Look at Romans six, Romans six, one and two. Paul deals with that issue. Paul brings it up in Romans 3, and he clarifies it specifically in Romans 6. He says, 1 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How how shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? That's not (coughs) suggesting that you cannot sin. It's not suggesting that you will not sin. It's suggesting the fact that it's absurd for you to say, Hey, Boy, every time I go sin and God meets it out with grace, boy, that just makes more grace have to happen, and that's a good thing. As though that we should be trying to cause God to have to to forgive us more. Now, again, those of us, I would think most of us think that that's a pretty absurd thing, but Paul's having to deal with those issues. And what's really crazy is having to deal with those issues with Jews, which should know better. There.
1: I was just going to say, is, is the Church of Corinth an example of that? Maybe, or was that? Well, I
0: wouldn't different? say so much an example of this. Um, obviously, they were called out because they weren't judging a matter, uh, um, and, and also you had the issue that they were having where they were coming together and they they weren't practicing the Lord's Supper correctly. And so, I don't know that their heart was so much guilty of this um, particular situation, but they were certainly having to be reprimanded because they weren't judging matters the right way. And so, but the great thing is, the Corinthians, when they were confronted with it, they did put out that that uh, man who was committing a sexual sin, and he repented. The thing in which Paul said that it should lead to, it did lead to, and the guy repented of what he did, and he was brought back in, and um, he wasn't judged, he wasn't scorned, he was... Uh, he was allowed back into the, into the group. So, but here in Romans 3, again, these first, uh, first eight verses, uh, Paul is, is, is dealing uh, with a couple of, of issues that, that pertain to some nonsense of, of thinking, this idea that God doesn't have a right and keep right to judge. And that's been Paul's point through the first two chapters. Remember Romans chapter 1, he was dealing with that non-believing, secular, Gentile, that um, um, that was going to be judged because all of all, all are guilty because they've, they've basically said God is not God whenever you give God's glory to another and you say that this stick figure created mankind uh, whenever you call it a God whenever you set up an idol um, that's, uh, that's nonsense and so these first uh, two chapters in the first part of chapter 3 that's what Paul is dealing with in the next week, we'll pick up in verse 9, and uh, Paul is going to start to make some points here as it relates to um, um, all of us being guilty before God. Any questions or, or comments on that? Or any thoughts on uh, on even just the silliness of some of the things that Paul's having to deal with here? Imagine if we had the mind of God even for a moment, and, we're, and he even listed out the absurd arguments that because He knows the hearts of man, um, the, the absurd arguments that man has made to excuse himself before God, and even the ones that we, we ourselves have made. so. Okay, next week we'll pick up in, in verse nine.